There's a man in America that wrote all of your textbooks. The way he tells it, colonization did more good than bad. The way he tells it, slavery wasn't so bad after all. And the way he tells it, there's no such thing as a good Indian unless it's a dead Indian. But there's a problem with this man. He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Welcome to the podcast that goes to war with that man. For centuries, history has been the tool of masters, oppressors, settlers, and invaders. Let's change that. My name is Noah Ramage. And my name is David Hamilton. This is Uncolonial History. All over the country, a not-so-silent struggle is taking place. In almost every major city, many working-class neighborhoods are being taken over by newer, wealthier, and wider waves of renters. In cities such as San Francisco, which has recently become the most expensive city in America, by the way, a new frontier has appeared. The issue largely began in the 1990s. As the internet industry really began to take off, the Bay was hit with a rapid migration of young, ambitious tech workers looking for cheap housing in the working class communities. And the city seems to encourage this. From 2012 to 2014, 85% of new real estate construction in San Francisco was expensive and high-end. That's great. That's a lot. It was all like luxury apartments. In 2015, efforts made by local residents to put limits on these projects were rejected. In this way, the city government has made it clear who they want to come and who they want to leave. So some people say these changes are inevitable. They're wrong. (laughs) They're definitely wrong because working class residents don't surrender and they don't give in to these changes. They fight back. Mariachi Square is the heart of Boyle Heights a solidly Hispanic neighborhood that in the past saw waves of immigrants. There was Irish, Italians, Jewish, Russians, Japanese, you name it, they all lived here. This was like Ellis Island of the West. The latest wave is wealthier, mostly white artists and professionals attracted by proximity to downtown LA and public transit. But people in Boyle Heights don't believe their displacement is unstoppable. Alvira Barrales joined with her building's tenants to resist a predatory landlord. I pay $636 in rent. The new landlord wanted to raise it to $1,100 or $1,200. That's a radical change for us. Tenants are coming together. Tenants are refusing to pay building by building these increased exorbitant rents. But people are now fighting back and saying, we're not going to go. We are here to stay. Much of the community's efforts has been directed at art galleries, which they see as the thin edge of the wedge for gentrification. They've served galleries with symbolic eviction notices. Some gallery owners sympathize with the protests, but say new government policies are what's needed to preserve some low-income housing. Activist Angel de la Luna has a message for the newcomers. We don't want you here, that there are economic consequences to your presence here, and that we will suffer from those and you will benefit, and that is not something, you know, we as Latin Latino working class people want to go through, so you need to get the out of here. A community organized to hold back the tide of gentrification. So here's what the resistance looks like. In Los Angeles, local residents have organized into a group called Corazon del Pueblo, and which is on many occasions effectively used the threat of violence to scare away real estate investors from the predominantly Latino neighborhoods of Boyle Heights. In New York, a group called Landmark East Harlem has chosen a different tactic. Quietly and methodically, the organization lobbies for landmark statuses on properties across Harlem. Their aim is to beat the real estate companies to the punch, legally fortifying their neighborhood against further construction rather than waiting for the fight to come to them. And what we have to understand is that this isn't your everyday debate on like politics, religion, or the economy. People are fighting for their homes and their neighborhoods. And um, neighborhoods of color are doing everything they can to hold on to these identities. And for many, the struggle is personal beyond words. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because to fight something, you always always have to understand it. Uh, So for this episode, that is our goal. At the very heart of it, what is this phenomenon? And historically, where does it come from? Let's get into it. Let's get into it. 
why don't we just get into it? Let's get into it. <laughs> I like one of those. I don't know which one. Okay, so it's 1964. Let's just take it back really quick. Yeah. British sociologist Ruth Glass is walking around London in a borough called Islington. Is that how you say that? That's what the internet says. <laughs> and Islington is actually a very interesting place with a very interesting history. During the 1600s, it was the home of the gentry class. Wait, I thought it was 1964. Yeah, you know, so that's, that's the thing. <laughs> It kind of like goes back to 1964, and then I'm like, Islington has a, a interesting. All right. What happened in 1964? We'll get to that at the end. I'm gonna throw it back, but in order to throw it back, we gotta throw it back a little further. Okay. All right. So, Ruth Glass is walking around London in a borough called Islington, and Islington is actually a very interesting place with a very interesting history. Uh, so we're going to go back even further to the 1600s. <laughs> we're going to throw it back a little bit more. Uh, so during the 1600s, it was the home of the gentry class. Another word for the elite, the wealthy, or the powerful. But as time went on, Islington changed a lot. In the 1800s, London began building new railway stations, uh, displacing thousands of poor families who soon crowded into Islington. So obviously the gentry class didn't stay after that, and after Islington was bombed during World War II, the borough became even less attractive. For these reasons and more, Islington became the adopted home of working class immigrants, most of whom were from the West Indies. But in the 1960s... Back to the 1960s. There we go. <laughs> Back in the 1960s, something strange starts happening. So a small and oftentimes more liberal part of the white middle class starts to think of Islington as fashionable. Um, for whatever reason, they like the architecture and are attracted to the cheapness of the rent. I can understand that, to be honest. <laughs> but they actually want to be around the lower class, so they move in. Okay, so Ruth Glass is walking around observing all of these strange transformations, and all of a sudden, she makes up a term for it. Using that British word, gentry, which again refers to the privileged classes, she decides to call it gentrification. And the thing that Glass was describing, gentrification, it was popping up everywhere. From the shy to NY, from Austin to Boston, from Philly to Philly, the middle class was on the move. I'm just going to take a moment to note <laughs> that rhyme scheme because <laughs> it was beautiful. <laughs> you had a lot of fun with that, I see. I'm a poet. <laughs> I didn't and know I know it. <laughs> okay, so it's time to find out what gentrification really is. So he sat down with esteemed Vanderbilt professor, Dr. James Frazier. Dr. Frazier is a sociologist who has written extensively on gentrification and its consequences. When we asked him to sum up what gentrification really is, here's what he told us. It's really very much of an understatement to think of gentrification as only people being displaced from their homes, like as an end result. Like we talk typically in academia about the effects. How many people were displaced? How many black people were displaced? Often uh, academics and even policymakers that study gentrification think about it simply as someone economically being put in a position where they have to leave their neighborhood because housing values are increasing. So if you're a renter, you know, someone might increase your rent there are a range of reasons why people are forcibly displaced. But beyond that, part of gentrification is also what I would call a cultural project in the sense of putting forth a vision of how we ought to live as members or citizens in our society. Now if you were to Google gentrification, here's what it would tell you. Gentrification is defined as the purchase and renovation of... Okay, actually, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. 
Gentrification is defined as the purchase and renovation of houses and stores in poor urban neighborhoods by the upper or middle classes, therefore causing a rise in property values, but also displacing low-income families and businesses who can no longer afford to live there. Okay, wait, 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 wait. We need to slow it down. I thought that we were talking about gentrification, an event, the middle class moving into poor neighborhoods and pushing poor people out. David, what does he mean when he says that gentrification is a cultural project? I got you. Okay, so that's where this is going to take a turn. Gentrification is not an event at all. It's tied to a structure as old as time itself, as a matter of fact, property. Just listen to how Dr. Frazier explains how the history of property has completely shaped gentrification as we know it today. Uh, During the 1930s, the United States federal government, along with the real estate industry, pushed a home ownership kind of ethos. Like a homeowner is the full expression of citizenship rights. Because if we think about the way that property has been conceived of, only white men could own property in the United States for quite a while. And after that, you have government policies during the 20th century that expressly forbid banking and lending institutions to give loans out to non-white populations. Being kept from owning property in our society means that what middle class, predominantly white, but not anymore, experience as a privilege making wealth off of being a homeowner, uh, being able to benefit from a process like gentrification where all of a sudden their housing value rapidly increases in a couple of years, that has not been made available to a large group of people that live in our country and it's been done on purpose. Okay, so basically, throughout history, federal and local governments have always made property and capitalism a white man's game. This was the case late into the 1900s, which means... Which means that when gentrification really took off, it was a completely unfair fight. In one corner, you had people working with centuries of property knowledge, rights, and privileges capital of all kinds, but in the other corner you had people who had only just won the right to vote. And when you let that fight happen, property becomes a tool for dehumanizing entire communities. It sets up a situation where, on the one hand now, if you ask a lot of people, how do you feel about the redevelopment of our city in Nashville? Folks are happy, they're like, well, at least it's not the ghetto anymore. You know, it's just like revitalization versus the ghetto. And unfortunately, I think that people who live in these lower income neighborhoods are considered almost non-citizens. And to make matters even more messed up, There's the myth of a post-racial society. You can't see it, but I'm using air quotes. After the civil rights movement, which didn't achieve all of its goals by a long shot, uh, many conservatives started declaring that racism was over. They started saying that to even talk about race was racist. But this myth is yet another piece of the gentrification puzzle. Just listen to Dr. Frazier explain how the myth of a post-racial society is used in gentrification. They all claim, you have civil rights, now you're on an equal playing field. And we all know that's not true. But yet, our public policymakers are unwilling to speak about how the history of racism has current impacts and effects. And the majority of developers and investors that are making money are white people. They are not community members of these neighborhoods for the most part. The city is not protecting anybody.
Okay, so we got our minds filled up with all this new information, all these statistics. Uh, okay, basically we just said, all right, it's time to just go out and look at how gentrification is affecting our own city. Yeah. Here we go. Too many questions, not enough answers. Life's moving too fast, I need some brake pads and I got some issues nobody can really see and these raps are the only way those emotions are coming out of me. Wrote this at 4 in the morning, reflecting on life. Been doing wrong for so long, just wanna make it alright. But it's hard when all you got is doubt and pressure on your brain. Swear to God, this music shit only thing keeping me sane. And every night I ask God why he took my nigga earnest. I don't challenge him much, but did he really deserve it? I know he's in a better place, far away from the madness, but he's forever on my mind. I never ever forget the magic So I try to smoke weed to get me the fix I need And drown in alcohol to get away from it all But swear, life got me stressed All this shit is at my neck It just got me to the point where I want me a cigarette I want a new boy Yeah, I want a new boy I had a consensual relationship with a member of my security detail, and I am deeply sorry for that. And I am embarrassed, and I am sad, and I am so sorry for all the pain that I have caused my family and his family. I know that, that God will forgive me, but that Nashville doesn't have to. And I hope that I can earn their trust and I can earn your trust back and that you will forgive me. What I did was wrong. I should not have had an affair. Uh, I would have had the security detail with me as part of my mayor responsibilities, regardless of who that person was, but I should not have had that affair. So that was Megan Barry, the first woman to ever be elected as mayor of Nashville apologizing for a very recent scandal in which she had an affair with the head of her security. The relationship was consensual. The head of security received a significant increase in overtime, but the overtime was all for business trips, and so far there hasn't been any conclusive proof that any taxpayer money was abused. But obviously that's never good enough. Mayor Barry has recently been the subject of a lot of criticism. Okay, so you're probably wondering, okay, what does this have to do with gentrification? Yeah, I was learning that too. But it's everything. Megan Barry is a Democrat that won her election by appealing to deeply rooted communities in Nashville that wanted more affordable housing and more limits on gentrification. That has not happened. Not at all, as a matter of fact. Uh, development has skyrocketed. Nashville is the 20th fastest growing city in the country, and people are losing their homes. Just listen to how one person we met, a man named Tavius, described the challenges he's facing. Uh, I, I'm an artist in Nashville. I also do IT work. Um, I've been an artist in Nashville for probably 20 years now, and I literally uh, am sleep have been sleeping with my wife in the basement of a friend's house because I can't afford to live here. I literally can't afford it. Like, I used to live off of Centennial, like right by the park, for 400 bucks a month, and then it went up to eight, and now it's at 12, and now it's at two, and I don't know where to get two grand from anywhere. I used to, then I moved to East Nashville. Then they bought out East Nashville. Then I moved to West Nashville, right off of Charlotte and Whitebridge. Then they bought out that. Like, it's chasing you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Literally. Like, so, like, you know, now I have to look at, I guess, outer Antioch? You, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and that's, you know. The price, you know, I haven't been paid more. People are coming here because it's artistic and it's cool and there's artists and there's people making stuff and all that stuff. But if the artists can't afford to live here, all that cool is gone. Last November, protesters even organized a vigil for the neighborhoods lost. They even brought a fake coffin to one of Megan Barry's community meetings. Some of the people protesting described how they were on the brink of losing their homes. And yet, the consensual affair of Megan Barry, not the neglect of her voters, is what makes the nightly news and noise on social media. It's really crazy to see what makes a scandal and what's just seen as business as usual. 
to get a more personal understanding of gentrification and how it's affecting communities in Nashville, we took a ride with the local rap sensation Brian Brown, who, by the way, all this great music we've been playing so far, that's been his. So you can find him on Apple Music and Spotify at Brian Brown. And for SoundCloud and the rest of his social media, just look for World of Brown. World of Brown. One word, no spaces. Don't you dare put a space in there. The greatest ever. But let's go ahead and get to our interview with Brian, where he told us all about what's been going on in East Nashville. Block after block, Brian showed us the very front lines of gentrification. On one side of the street, you have traditional houses of East Nashville, modest family homes um, with communities that have been living there since segregation. And on the opposite side, there's totally new houses filled with totally new people. And it's a problem. We keep saying these words, displacement, development, and gentrification, but that doesn't really make it personal. Brian spent almost our entire drive talking about a tight-knit community of people that he grew up with. He went to middle school a block away from where he went to elementary school, and several of his family members were very close by. Just listen to how he talks about all of the memories he has in his Nashville. Shout out Cheetah, my auntie used to live over here. My auntie Louise, I don't know where she at now. I love you though if you're listening, you probably ain't. She probably don't even know what a goddamn podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> like think about how many people don't know there are three HBCUs within like a mile and a half of each other here. You know what I'm saying? Like that's that's kinda sad, just a little bit. Pretty much my entire family essentially went to TSU. My mother, my grandmother, my auntie, my family from Chad came down to go to TSU. I bought my first ever piece of illegal alcohol in the city at that liquor store right there. Northwest Liquors, over there in Buchanan. Yeah, man. Well, shout out Knockout Wings. Easily the best biscuits. The best biscuits in the entire universe. For 50 cents. For 50 cents. All right, so what we used to do in high school, because you know we had off-campus lunch. Yeah. Nothing but wings had the better chicken wings. Knockout wings had the better biscuits. Yeah. So we'd take one car, one friend would go get the chicken wings that everybody ordered. The other person would go grab the biscuits, and then we just come back to school and just just, just get at it. Get, just, it should be fire, bro. I, that's probably the best part about high school was not having to eat the cafeteria food. <laughs> Shout out to this Je- Jehovah Witness Church. She used to knock on my door all the time. We never answer the door, though. They stay on the grind. They stay on the fucking grind. This might be the church that comes to my neighborhood. Oh, they finally closed down the Douglas Market? Wow, rest in peace. That was such a janky grocery store, but <laughs> definitely... Definitely, definitely vital part of the neighborhood. Nice. Take you by my grandma's house. My grandma's old house. No, I'm talking about like the old, old house where I got my first PlayStation and shit at. Yeah. I'm so entrenched in the memories and they've helped my music out in so way, in so many ways that like, even when it's not there no more, it'll forever be there. Because I'm doing my dance to make sure that people know exactly where I'm coming from and get an idea of like, what helped, you know, mold and cultivate the, the artist and the rapper that I am now. So I, I know I got one song where I was like, gentrified my side, want to take us out, sweep us under the rug, but we too dirty, dirty for that. We left that stain, you stuck with us. It's home. It's where the love is, it's where the hatred is. Like, I, you know, it's home. But don't get me wrong, though, at the same time, I wish they were just a little bit more aware of those who even set the foundation for all this shit to even happen. A lot of people put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears on the line for a lot of this shit to even be built up the way it's built up. We asked about when all these changes started to happen, and he showed us that when it comes to gentrification, it can be hard to tell when it really takes off. We're being affected because cause we just watched it be snatched from us right in front of our eyes out of nowhere. Because when we talked about it in school, I didn't realize what was happening. It wasn't until I left chat and hearing about it in school and it just clicked with me. I was like, oh my God. Because that's, that, that's like, in Nashville, it was just happening around us. 
And you know If you didn't know no better You just like Oh shit we got a new this We got a new that Yada 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 Whatever whatever Not really knowing that Holy shit They're really like <laughs> Flipping the city around And shit like that A couple of my homies Give a damn uh, I guess a lot of them Is just kind of like Just Just kind of Just accepting it For what it is It's like nah You can't really Just do that though Another thing that's pretty interesting is when Brian was growing up, these places were seen as dangerous and people avoided them at all costs. Now, it's a completely different story. I remember when I first seen a white dude walking a dog over here for the first time. I was like, it's time to go. I don't know, like, after this time, after a certain point, about 10 years ago, I wasn't finna walk my dog out north. I wasn't finna walk my dog. I wasn't finna walk my dog in my own neighborhood. I didn't have no dog. I wouldn't even walk my dog. You know, like that. These are real life things that that people from here can and will say. So as Brian told us more and more, it got harder and harder to understand how gentrification hasn't become a mainstream problem. Because remember, all anyone wants to talk about is things like the Megan Barry affair, not the Megan Barry neglecting to follow through on her campaign promises. And according to Brian. The clock is ticking. More and more places he thinks of as vital parts of his community are closing down. And he's left with a simple unanswered question. That was the YMCA for me, the Market Baptist Wire over on Gallatin. That was my spot, man. Oh yeah. Yeah, that was that was definitely my place. And I don't know, I don't I can't say where the kids is going now. If they're going anywhere. I mean, as much as I hate this shit, this shit look nice, dog. It, it, it's pretty. It's pretty, but it's dumb too. Cause like, 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 like David said, like, where do we go? So we decided that it was time to meet people on the other side of this issue, and what we found was a little bit surprising. We headed to East Nashville, spending most of our time in an area that has recently become primarily white and middle class. So there are all kinds of high-end condos, restaurants, shops, and bars all just two blocks away from the heavily policed housing projects known as the James A. Casey Homes. Now, it should be said that most people did not want to talk to us about this topic. We got a lot of rejections. A lot of rejections. Many no's. Thank yous. Many no thank yous. <laughs> and just many no's. <laughs> but for those that did talk to us, something really interesting was going on. Even people that admitted to being part of gentrification were still critical of gentrification itself. Just take a listen. I think that it's good, it's good and bad. Yeah. Um, I think that it's nice to go to some areas, like I'm like Northwest Nashville, so it's like nice. It's like nice to be, <laughs> yeah. it's like nice to be over there and we got a Chick-fil-A now, so I'm oh, stoked yeah. about that. Yeah. So there's not much around there, so I'm glad when stuff gets around there, but then I think the people that are there don't have any place to go. So everybody was scared when a new building went up because they were like, oh, there's, there's like a month before I gotta leave. I think that sometimes it goes unnoticed by people who aren't affected by it. So people that are positively affected by it don't understand how it negatively impacts people. They just understand that they get cool stuff around their house, you know? So like, I don't know, I think that there could be some solutions in like preservation, particularly of rent in low income areas that, I don't know, at, at least find a different solution than just kind of like booting people out of their house. It's a tough one because in, in one aspect, I was in an area that was being gentrified and it was cool to me at the time because things were getting better around me. Uh, more more shops that I'm familiar with and stuff are opening up and the places I can go. But at the same time, there's a, there's a culture there, minority culture that has been there for forever. And I literally remember one guy asking me like, man, when did white people start, when did you guys start moving here? I'm like, I don't know when it was cheap, <laughs> but I couldn't find a place to stay. So I understand that there are people that are being affected by it. I think it is, it's inevitable if, if you have a, a city, a town that has cool things happening in it and there's uh, a demand for housing from, you know, middle class, upper middle class, then yes, it's, there's no way it's not going to happen. Um, but I think there, there are ways to handle it. Yeah, I, I don't know. There, there's got to be a middle ground. Well, I build houses, so to me it's awesome. Yeah. I get the bad side of it, like we're growing way too fast for what we can keep up with. 
Would you say that um, gentrification is an issue in Nashville? Uh, see, the builder side of me says no, because okay. it does no make it does make you know the you know Nashville grow. But then you have this problem where all these people that have lived in these neighborhoods for years and years and years now can't afford it. So that issue, you have to figure out what you're going to do about that. Yeah. That's the issue. And I think if we had better transit, it wouldn't be an issue because if you live further out, you can still get to yeah. work and all that. Yeah. But a lot of these people that live in these neighborhoods, they rely on bus systems, they rely on walking, all of that to get around the city. And when you're you know, pushed out of the city, you, you can't get there. Yeah. I think the thing is you can't fight it. Think about every city in America. New York didn't used to be so big. And money comes in, and it builds it up and builds it up, and people get further and further apart. You know, three, four years ago, living in East Nashville was, you know, moderate. Yeah. Ten years ago, it was cheap as fuck. Yeah. Like, th like if you needed to steal, you came to East Nashville. Yeah. And now, like, I build million-dollar houses on some of these streets. It happens. I'm actually about to go buy a bunch of properties in Detroit. Okay. And it's just this year is the first year that their economy has been up in like nine years. You can buy like a four bedroom house in Detroit right now for like $20,000 for $20,000. One of my friends bought a house in East Nashville 10 years ago for $40,000 and now it's worth 400. Yeah. And all of those neighborhoods that were destroyed by the economy in 27 or 2007, yeah. they're all gonna eventually make its way back up. And all of these people we talked to, they were really cool people. Very genuine, very thoughtful. Like, take that last one, for example, Lawson. He was talking to us about going to Detroit to buy cheap properties before the city makes a comeback. And normally I would think, damn, if this were a movie or TV show, he would be the bad guy, the villain. But in reality, he was actually a really great guy who gave us really thoughtful views. What we're trying to say is, something is missing from our current narrative because our villains they're not acting like villains at all this reminds me of something that dr frazier told us he described it as the real cause of gentrification because we live in a society that allows capitalists to invest wherever they want and not have to take into consideration the effects of their investment. For example, like people getting displaced from their homes when, you know, folks are renting and the owners of the homes sell. And then, you know, you either have the house knocked down and then two more built there or renovations uh, in order to really make maximum surplus value or profit and there's absolutely no consideration for the people that are not in a position to uh, benefit from this form of urban revitalization so that answers one of our questions good people can participate and profit from an unjust system even when they supposedly disagree with it because at the end of the day money talks just listen to brian brown's perspective on a few neighborhoods that aren't getting gentrified but are still impoverished and whose needs are neglected by the government i i, I don't want them to be neglected but i kind of want them to keep the essence of it too so it's, it's you know it's, it's, it's like the interesting it's the catch 22 of gentrification itself it's like damn man why did that house have to sell like why did why is that happening well shit somebody sold that house so you know you can't be mad at the people who bought bought it and, and wanted to move in but now we have an entirely new problem remember when we told you about ruth glass the british sociologist that took a walk through islington and created the term gentrification well we lied as it turns out, what Ruth Glass saw on that fateful day in 1964, it wasn't really gentrification at all. It was something completely different, something much, much older. Alright, so stick with us here, because right now we have to go all the way back to May 4th, 19... ooh, not 19, 1493. So 
It's a cool 525 years ago. Um, you know, a hot, a hot 525. It's a hot skip and a jump. Pope Alexander VI creates one of the most important documents in history. It was a papal bull, which is basically a special decree or announcement made by the head of the Catholic Church. So this papal bull had a special name, the Intercayatura. It was created specifically because the year before, 1492, you know where this is going, Christopher Columbus had discovered a lot of new land in Central and South America, and the church wanted to support Spain's exclusive right to own these lands. They wanted to help Spain set up new cities, states, and territories all in the name of the Catholic Church. But this was a document that was going to sign off on the invasion of countless indigenous nations. There had to be a good excuse. So the church said, you know, okay, we're all going to try to spread Christianity around the world. So uh, while you guys start colonizing, just remember any land that is being ruled by non-Christians, that land is fair game to be claimed by the first Christians to get there. Today, we refer to this rule as the Doctrine of Discovery. Okay, remember that. And it became everyone's rule. Protestant countries started using it too. When Puritans established the Massachusetts Bay Company, they adopted the Doctrine of Discovery to claim land. When French colonists claimed land in what is today Eastern Canada, they used the same excuse. The entire country of Australia was claimed by British colonists with a very similar legal principle, terra nullius, which is Latin for nobody's land. That is, if you pretend there are no Aboriginal people standing right in front of you. Okay, at this point, you're probably again thinking, all right, you have lost me. What? How does this have to do with gentrification? Yeah, we've gone down the rabbit hole. We're deep. But. Deep inside the rabbit hole. Stick with us. See, you would think something as backwards as the doctrine of discovery was left in the past. Well, you would be wrong. In fact, it is still one of the most important legal principles when we consider property today. So here to explain is Michelle Crowfeather. Michelle is from the Rocky Boy Reservation and Hunkpapa, Lakota, and recently graduated from Columbia University with a degree in Indigenous Studies. The theft of land from Indigenous people through like dispossession has quote unquote never been like illegal because it's been legalized through a government, through a legal system that wanted to make it legal. Like, does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So like, um, the doctrine of discovery and stuff just kind of is like one of those big texts, one of those big things that kind of made that legal. Um, so if you talk about like doctrine of discovery, even like discovery, like the notion of discovery, like can you actually discover a place that's like already lived upon um, years and generations and thousands of years by people that know that land? No. <laughs> <laughs> but then you like, so when like settlers come and like want to like, live there, take the resources, extraction, exploit the land and like the people and like yada yada yada. Um, but the way that is like done or has been done is through like doctrine of discovery. And so it was like, again, a legal doctrine um, pushed through like religion being like, this is the right thing through salvation. This idea of salvation that these people as savages, air quotes and whatever need to be saved, um, and so that was also used to like further take land, to claim land. Like you couldn't legally take land from a group of people that already lived there. But if these people are like savages or don't know how to live on the land as property, blah, 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 but aha, uh -huh, then they obviously don't have any claims to the land. So like things like the doctrine of discovery and stuff made that legal, made it okay. Like they don't deserve the lands. They don't know how to like work the lands take care of it in the ways that like settlers already knew or felt like they knew. Hmm. Ooh, I'm going to go off script. I'm going to go off script for a second because I know you know about this. 
Um, okay. What does this have to do with Adam Smith and like yeah. his 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 definition of property? Oh, you mean John Locke? Oh shit! Oh, we're leaving that in there too. No, because I I know you know and it, we, like this conversation, you know, it's getting interesting. It's getting onto that topic, so I know you could you know explain that yeah. to people that are listening. Well, he was like a um, political theorist, was of like the Enlightenment time. So like people being like, well, a lot of old white men were a lot of thinking about like big theories of government and how that should run. But in his second treatise of government, it's like one of his major um, works that he's known for. But in there, in one of them, he talks about it's titled uh, Of Property. And so he's talking about land and property. Um, so if you think about this as two separate things, as two separate concepts, um, he breaks it down as like, what makes land property? When is it defined as property? Or private property is his specific thing. Um, so he kind of goes through like, this is how you work the land, like work being a key word and a phrase in his whole section, being like, if you don't work the land, then it's not property. And thus you're not cultivating it, again, another one of his major words, cultivating it to its proper and useful potential. So like his example, I believe he uses like an apple tree being like, if you do not use that apple, like all the apples, everything there, then you're not actually like using the land. Therefore it's not your property. But the way he defined it is what kind of, I think at the time, like not at the time, but even to right now is still like huge. It's still used and thought of as like, that's what land is. It is private property. And so, and how that is used, like if other people aren't using it or cultivating it or using all the apples, then that doesn't make it their land. Then we can take it, right? And so these all kind of like layer upon each other as like making it more like, okay, making it legal as like, it's okay to take these lands from like these savages who don't know how to use or work the land, as John Locke would say. And so we're going to use this idea of like, discovery where we discovered lands that obviously aren't uninhabited or un undiscovered what's the word (laughs) it just it just further justifies and making it okay it's pretty evident how his work and like his idea of like property and privatization of land is like connected to colonization or like specifically like settler colonialism So let's fast forward a little further to the year 1823. Yeah, we're getting closer to the present. Uh, The U.S. Supreme Court probably gets the most important case it will ever get. Johnson versus Emmentash. In this case, the Supreme Court essentially had to justify the entire country's existence. Okay, so here's what happened. Before the United States gained its independence, a guy named Thomas Johnson bought land directly from the indigenous Piankasha Nation. Years later, a man named William Emmentosh bought the same exact land from the federal government. So the question became, who owned the land? The guy who first got it from the indigenous nation or the guy who bought it from the federal government? In the end, the court ruled that Emmentosh owned the land. Citing the Doctrine of Discovery, Chief Justice John Marshall basically said it was never the indigenous people's land to sell. Marshall argued that once the U.S. declared independence, it inherited Great Britain's quote-unquote discovery of native land. And somehow, by some really twisted way of thinking, that meant the United States had the original right to this land, not the indigenous Pinkshaw people. Now, the importance of this cannot be understated. The doctrine of discovery, a colonial tool of invasion, is literally at the heart of defining property in America. According to Robert Miller, professor of law and author of Discovering Indigenous Lands, the deed to almost all real estate in the United States originates from an indigenous title that was acquired by the U.S. via the discovery principles. Translation, most property in the United States was at one point taken from Native Americans with the power of the doctrine of discovery. We asked Michelle to walk us through what this removal looks like. In terms of like removal, you can think about it in ways of like literally pushing bodies and people off lands that were their homelands and like removal in terms of like not only pushing them off lands, but like containing them through containment, like physical boundaries and barriers of holding people together. And 
So the first one that comes to mind, <laughs> no, I guess the main one, is through like um, the system of reservations and how that exists within the United States. And like even in Canada, which they would call reserves, um, but I don't necessarily know too much about that history. But um, so like in the United States, um, you can go back to the 1830 um, Indian Removal Act. Again, this is in the midst of the John Marshall trilogy. Haha. <laughs> but um, so this was pushed by Andrew Jackson, or the then President Andrew Jackson. Um, and this is largely in, I believe, wasn't it kind of like the, the South? You would say the South now. <laughs> but um, this is to push, I think, primarily like. Cherokee peoples off their homelands into different places and so this is one part of the long history of like reservations and like forcing people off their homelands onto a very specific plot of land like often the most terrible desolate you couldn't like grow anything so like, people kind of point to the most is like the Trail of Tears like Cherokee Nation um, and then there's I know like the long walk through the Navajo Nation um, which happened in like the Southwest, but this was like ongoing for various and different groups that like maybe pushed off their land, like these homelands that they have lived there for like thousands and thousands of years and they have these deep connections through like language and ceremonies. Um, but ultimately it was just, they were rounded up by U.S. cavalry um, and forced off and pushed on to like very specific defined boundaries of land away from like uh, like their very ways of life so, like people couldn't like um fish like salmon or whatever is like the main force like the main source of their livelihoods um and like and then this is replaced by often like commodities which people like now kind of recognize but these are just like this is just like what you would understand as like heavily processed foods today um but, like just cheese often people get like flour oil maybe like very rotten meat. And this was like very, like this would come in like shipments at like <laughs> maybe every few weeks or every few months, if, if even. Um, and so there was like a, like the Bureau of Indian Agent or an Indian agent that would oversee, and this is often a non-native man that would oversee these places and be like, no, you can't do this. You cannot leave. You have to stay here. So like even in Canada, they had this thing called the pass system so they couldn't leave these like designated spaces, so like these reserves or reservations, without getting approval from their Indian agents. Um, but these men and like people that govern these spaces are cruel and mean and vicious. There's a big idea of that like, oh, colonialism is over, like discovery is a thing. And so if you think about like settler colonialism as like a cultural project and how that has existed in that way and still does, it's like through that continuous like erosion of very are like indigenous people's ways of life. I like to think about it as like some sort of colonial amnesia. It's like people don't want to take responsibility. People don't want to think about this history, this past, as if it's not their own, whereas there are still people that live with it every day of their lives. You know, it's like obviously reservations are still real, like people still live on there their whole lives or live there at some point or don't ever, like whatever, but they're still real things. And that's what colonization does. It makes people homeless on their own land. It displaces them far away from the places they've already known, and it robs them of their birthright. Just listen to Michelle explain how the Rocky Boy Reservation was formed. Although I say Rocky Boy, what I'm actually meaning is like Rocky Boys Reservation. That's like the tech technical title, um, which is like the home of like the Chippewa Cree Nation. And so Rocky Boys Reservation is located in like northern central Montana. Uh, and it was established or created in 1916. So like we just celebrated our like centennial like two years ago. And so a part of my research was also pushed largely by that like celebration because I kept seeing a lot of articles being published by like native and non-native peoples on different like publications and newspapers. But as I read them, I was kind of like a lot of the like language used is like really weird or like I, I guess I wouldn't agree with or like would 
push. One of them would talk about, it was like, oh, let's talk about the unique history of Rocky Boys Reservation and how, you know, it was created. And I was like, what do you mean the unique history? Like, so like that's also kind of what like pushed a lot of my research as I went through. It was like, why do people keep calling it unique? Like, what's so unique? So like in terms of like federal Indian policy, 1916 is actually like pretty late to like establish a reservation. Like a lot of like, again, the system of reservationization ended in like 1890s, 1870s. Like, oh, I think I went through like thousands of like newspaper articles this past summer of like newspapers from the 1850s up to like even now. One of them was called Rocky Boy Reaches the Promised Land. So there's like a lot of things to unpack in that. Like, so technically Rocky Boy wasn't created through like a treaty which is like often the history of like reservation there's through like like coercion of signing treaties or like what like that there's a long history of there that's very complicated and layered of like signing treaties and then being placed on reservations but rocky boy isn't it was created through a um, congressional act technically in 1916 that was signed by president i believe woodrow wilson at the time um, and so, like, the his and how that eventually, like, came up to the ranks to be, like, signed is, like, again, a history that is repeated in these, like, newspapers and journal articles that states that, like, oh, they these people, these, oh, this is so funny, but they call, they say, like, homeless Indians or landless Indians of Chief Rocky Boys and Chief Little Bears peoples and bands that they were homeless Indians, and so they needed to be given a land. And so through the efforts of, like, various like white settlers of neighboring towns that like were like oh these people are like sad they're like starving and they have deplorable like terrible living conditions we need to give them a home like we're helping them which is if you kind of think the overall irony of like history there being like well you forced them off lands or like stole lands and now you're kind of being like oh they don't have lands they don't know how to take care of themselves so we need to take care of them which is like the larger framing of like Rocky Boy's history that again is like repeated in all these articles and stuff. To me, it was really funny in the sense it was just super deeply ironic. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. even in like one of the articles, they would talk about this was like, oh gosh, 1904, 1902. But there was an article being like, oh, we like these Indians are like nuisances to like Haver, which is the neighboring border town of Rocky Boy's reservations today. Um, so the settlers then at the time, the people's there, they're like, oh, these are like, they're just nuisances. They don't know how to live their lives. They're dirty and blah, blah, blah. Uh, we need to like, oh, they can't stay here. And so there was a big push to be like, well, some of them aren't American. Some of them are Canadian. So there's a big question of like, are these Canadian Crees or American Crees? Because if they're Canadian, they don't need to be here. Go push them back to where they came, to where they came from, your quotes. And like, and so, which is like very ironic also again makes me laugh because like the Canadian border is like 20 miles away. Like, what are you going to ship them off 20 miles away and be like, stay there. And even to the, it's like not even a freaking fence there. <laughs> like, what are you gonna... And so that's not like not the point or like, I feel like shouldn't be a point. Um, because from what I like know and slash was taught, it's like through, they were, following um the buffalo like the traditional food source which is like which has been done in like thousands of years or following their traditional food source so like even in the magazine articles they would talk about magazine newspaper articles they would say oh they were like they were just nomadic indians following random buffaloes and i was like well if you actually know they're actually following their traditional source of food that has been (laughs) been there for years and then um, but then their characters being defined as nomadic mean being like they're just they don't have a place they're homeless and landless like that's a big part of like the history that's taught is like oh they were given this land because they were homeless or landless they were without a home basically so we had to give them a home like you can't give someone a home that's already been lands that they've known right but that's not the story that's told but because it would go against that very history that would position the doctrine of discovery as legal. Okay, by now you should be seeing a pattern here. A bunch of white people with a lot of capital see some desirable real estate, 
which is extra cheap because it's full of brown people running around doing God knows what, then these same white people say, hey, what if we moved our people in here? There's no rules against it. In fact, the government will probably take our side. Not only will we make a lot of money, we'll also make this place look a lot better than it does now. What we just described, that's not gentrification. That's colonization. Nothing I've been told about these people is correct. We'll be back after playing one more song from the Superman. Uh, this indigenous rap artist and DJ is amazing. You will sincerely regret it if you do not check out his debut album, which is called Illuminatives. Find him on Apple Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, and so on. Again, here's Superman. My team ain't even hungry, we famished. Yeah. They come around, but they never come close to. I tear teams, I'm a snare fiend. I laugh when my grandma died. Her hair green. I don't mean to hate, but MCs is fake. Sometimes I cut myself a piece of cake and freestyle and drop bombs for practice. I'm just trying to get ahead, like John the Baptist. It's okay if you hate my rhymes. I'll get a brain transplant and change my mind. Yo, I spit raw. I even scare grizzlies. So Leonardo DiCaprio. Bear with me. Bear with you say no, you animal. I can't wait. I met a cannibal. He asked me for a handshake. I mean, Superman fake? Nah. But what's real? Thugs kill every day making drug deals. I just bust seal. I spit his son and then from ever on my deathbed, just put me on a different one. Swing when you fake. Search and destroy. My team ain't even hungry. We famished. Who's the thing you're dealing with? I'm one man against the world. They come around, but they never come close to. At this point, you might be thinking, no. Colonization is the thing that attacked indigenous people. Gentrification is the thing that attacks city dwellers like black, Latino, and Asian communities. The problem with that is that gentrification is actually very much a problem for indigenous people as well. Check this out. Back in the 1950s and 60s, the U.S. federal government wanted to encourage, and in some cases coerce, Native Americans to leave their reservations and assimilate into American society. However, once these natives reached these cities, they were often met with both discrimination and a lack of resources to help them transition. Decades later, gentrification, something that might be rooted in colonialism, is displacing these same urban natives who now find themselves homeless, again, on their own native land. But to get back to the issue at hand, we went ahead and asked Dr. Frazier uh, what he thought about all of this. Is there really a connection between colonization and gentrification? Is gentrification even a separate thing? My only concern about the term gentrification is that, as Franz Fanon talked about, when it is a racial project, it is colonization. It is not simply an economic process. It wouldn't be possible for gentrification to happen in Nashville right now if during the 20th century we didn't contain certain populations of people in certain neighborhoods and not allow them the opportunity to purchase their own homes. Investor groups and developers are coming into the neighborhoods. They're literally changing the names of some neighborhoods. There's a process of erasing the histories of the people that live there. It is telling them that we are taking this from you. You do not have a choice and you will create another life for yourself. Or look at the 114 people that died on the streets of Nashville being homeless last year because you could be one of them. So get your second job. Do not complain about discrimination because everyone's operating an equal playing field now and shut up so it's hard to balance those two ideas in our head that somehow the middle class movers aren't the villains we think they are but at the same time their movement is ruining people's lives and destroying communities that's why it's so important to understand what gentrification really is it's not something that started in the 1960s when Ruth Glass started walking around London and just gave it a name. In fact, it's hard to say that whatever Ruth Glass was looking at was even a new thing at all. Basically, she gave a new name to an old thing. Over 500 years ago, 
A pope wrote down an idea that justified centuries of invasion, violence, and colonization. Today, not only do we still live on that stolen land, but now there's urban pockets of black, Latino, Asian, and indigenous communities, and their homes are being recolonized and retaken while they find themselves yet again removed. And while obviously we are not arguing that colonization and gentrification are the same, what we are saying is this. What we call quote-unquote gentrification is completely wrapped into the idea of property. And property, especially in settler nations such as the United States, is literally defined by its history of racism and colonialism. As late as 2005, 2005, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote a majority ruling with the doctrine of discovery as the basis of her argument. This idea is still how we justify property in a country that stole the land that it sits on. This means that any attempt to stop gentrification has to go deep because this whole thing we call gentrification goes to the very heart of how this country was defined. I asked Brian how he was going to connect with the city in the future. If all these places that he loved were replaced with luxury condos and high-end restaurants, the people he knew also pushed out of their old homes. But he told me he wasn't really worried about that. Because the land itself is luxury. To me, like, it's more so about, like, you know, I'm here. I want them to know, like, you know, this is where your boy came from, you know? Before he could finish what he was saying, we pulled up to a red light downtown. A middle-aged woman was wrapped up in a blanket, trying to sleep while tourists flocked to Nashville's countless new bars and clubs. Like, look at this lady right here. Hey, what? We don't need that, bro. We don't need that. A few minutes later, we wrapped up our tour with Brian, who only asked one thing of us. I'll just go take a walk and just enjoy my city. That's what I'm gonna do. You know, that's okay with y'all. Just drop me off downtown and I'm just gonna enjoy my city, dog. Cause that's what I need to do today. And I need to go flick off some fucking tourists. From all of our conversations, one thing was clear. People like Brian don't see wealth in the luxury condos, the rising property values, the modern architecture, none of that. They find the wealth somewhere else, in the places they actually come from, in the places they call home. of Uncolonial History, the podcast, Unsettling Cities. As always, stay up to date by following our Instagram page, which of course is just Uncolonial History. So obviously it took us a long time to get this second episode moving, but if you want to see this thing take off, if you want more episodes, please be sure to go to uncolonial.com. That's U-N-C-O-L-O-N-I-A-L dot com. And scroll down the page and you'll see a GoFundMe campaign on which you can obviously help support what we do. Now for the credits. This episode was produced by David Hamilton. And Noah Remage. Also, a big shout out again to both Brian Brown and Christian Parrish Takes the Gun, aka Superman. 
if you like Brian's music, which obviously he did, uh, you can find him on SoundCloud at World of Brown. And if you like Superman's music, which obviously he did as well, he has a new album called Illuminatives, which can be found on all music platforms and apps. Uh, so thanks again to you guys both for contributing to this episode of Uncolumbia History. We really appreciate it. Danielle Moore is the unspoken asset of this podcast. She does a lot of different stuff for both the blog and podcast. So thank you, Danielle. Christian Gould is our graphic designer. Monica Sekakwaptua is our social media director. Jasmine Joseph is our CFO. In principle, this episode was sponsored by Knockout Wings. Knockout Wings, a strong supporter of not gentrifying all of Nashville. And in particular, this episode is sponsored by Their Biscuits. In particular and exclusively. Last but not least, stay tuned for more Uncolonial History episodes, and we'll see you guys soon. Bon voyage. R.I.P. What? Arrivederci. I knew you were going to say that one. <laughs> Sayonara. Hasta la vista. Hasta la vista, baby. Bye. What? You're still here? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I'm not doing one of those. <laughs>